This show is made possible by you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, and if you want to help us tell more stories and reach more people, then from only two US dollars a month, you can become a patron of the show. Just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. It makes up 60% of your body. It covers 71% of the planet. But 25% of the world still doesn't have safe and affordable access to it. That's despite over 2 billion people gaining access since 1990. And recently, over 20% of the world's river basins have experienced either a rapid increase or rapid decline in the amount of it. I'm Jake Lloyd, you're listening to the How to Build Community Show, and in this episode we're talking about, you've probably guessed it, water. In a changing climate with a growing population, what is happening right now in communities around the world that are struggling to access enough safe water for their needs? What's working, what's not working, and what does the future look like? Well, I've been speaking to an expert to help us understand the past, present and future of safe water access for communities around the world. We have the skills, we have the capacity, we have the finance, we have the people. So I'm hopeful that whatever situation comes because of climate change, we can jointly go around it and we can adapt. That's the voice of Charles Masai. He is a water, sanitation and hygiene specialist at Tearfund with 25 years of experience leading projects in different countries across Africa. In this episode, you'll hear about how communities that struggle to access water are increasingly turning to a business model approach to make sure their water supply is fit for the future. So keep listening and you'll hear how these systems are set up, how they're managed, and you'll hear what work Charles thinks is still to be done. So let's get started. I first wanted to get a sense from Charles of how efforts to bring water to communities have changed over time. So I began by asking him to tell me about what his job was like working on water access projects for NGOs when he first got started. When I joined in, uh, I came in as an engineer, and it was about construction. You know, not so much about people. It's there's need for water, so look at uh, your studies and uh, your you know your skills, ensure that water has been provided. So this is how it was, and it was very very technical. It was only engineers who are in there. But over time, he and his colleagues began to realize that the focus of this work was too limited. I think most of the interest for especially the non-government organizations, uh, sometimes even the government, was around access. Let us construct facilities for people so that we can say our coverage is 80%, is 20%. So we were much more focused on access. But then uh, over the years, you can see that uh, although we put up facilities, some may not be working. So why did these water projects fail? To answer this, he told me a story from his work in South Sudan. 
a lot of NGOs, uh, even government, have uh, sunk boreholes and installed them with hand pumps and trained communities who work as volunteers. Uh, they are called hand pump uh, mechanics. And there is uh, even a curriculum of how you train them on maintenance, changing stuff, and all that. But we have so many hand pumps that we continuously go and do repairs for. And you find that the mechanic that had been trained has possibly moved on uh, because there are no job opportunity and they are volunteers. So there's an opportunity that comes up in town where they're employed, so they move on. Uh, Even the tools that were handed over to them cannot be found. So uh, that is one of the practical things that we have seen. So people move on to look for opportunities because they are volunteers, but they need to fend for their families. So that's one aspect. Then secondly, because of the continuous conflicts and we did not invest in uh, local supply uh, mechanisms, you could have the mechanic, you could have the tools, you could have the skills, but then once they remove the parts, you don't have access to a part to replace it. So that again becomes a challenge. So for us to succeed, we have to ensure that the whole chain has been looked into. So having boreholes, wells, water pumps and other water infrastructure in place isn't enough to guarantee success. And so over time, Charles's job expanded from a purely engineering role to something much broader. There are other things very, very important. Yes, provide the water, there is need for the skills, the engineering technical skills. But much more than that, there are other very, very critical things. One, financing. Two, uh, legislation. Governments, what is the mandate of uh, the, the government? Uh, what is the legislation around who provides water? There are issues around the water quality itself. There are issues now around the environment. Yeah. And uh, there are issues about sustainability. So, so over time, things have really changed. Uh, the, the key issues around engineering still exists, but it's much more than that. Uh, there's much more of communities now taking up more responsibilities. It's, it's quite a big change. And right now, my, my, my job is not so much about the technical designs, but much more about how do we ensure that these facilities, these needs are continuously sustained. So quite, quite a change over the years, but a positive change, I would say. So these are some of the aspects that uh, we need to look at so that we ensure that a system works beyond uh, the construction. So there's a choice of technology, uh, there's a skill, there's finances, and there's also the arrangements, the management uh, arrangement. Uh, If we say, for example, which was very, very common in the past, that uh, we are handing over this facility to the community, but we have not organized the community we don't, they do not have even the legal mandate to run the system. So they don't have even a way in which they raise funds 
how do we then ensure that the system continuously operates? So how best can a water supply system continually operate beyond its construction? As Charles mentioned, relying on volunteers to keep water systems operating doesn't always work. And in the absence of government provision, communities are increasingly turning to a business model approach. Now, there can be lots of different groups involved in this approach, and it's a little complicated to explain. But again, with an example from South Sudan, Charles told me how people who have the skills to maintain water pumps have been assisted to form a professional body so they can source equipment and spare parts from businesses and sign agreements to manage water points with communities. Here's how it works. We have brought together the hand pump mechanics that were trained by the different agencies and they have been registered by the government as a cooperative. And we have now been assisting them with the supply chain and linked them also with the private suppliers. And then since they have the training, just do refresher trainings, but train them much more on business and then entered into agreements with the community. And this has been approved by the district water ministry that, yes, we have given responsibility to this cooperative. So the contract is for such an amount, the mechanics will ensure that the system is running. So yes, uh, privatization or professionalization can take different forms, but basically, Uh, It's just the notion that this is not going to be voluntary. It's about business. And this is where the the sector is heading. But what is happening in the communities where this business approach is starting to form? Charles told me about how often local people are forming groups to manage the water access points where they live. We call them the water users committees. At each of the water points, the community have selected representatives whose responsibility is to make sure that there are queues, the water the water infrastructure area is clean, there are issues around usage that are resolved if there is conflict. When the animals come, where do they get drinking water from? You know, if there are conflicts between two families, how is that resolved? We call them water users committee. These groups sign an agreement with the Hand Pump Mechanics Association and this agreement is endorsed by the government. And here's what happens next. The Water Users Committee sits down with the community and discusses the costs involved. And uh, if you want to register at a scale, uh, there, there are different levels, gold, silver, bronze. So the community decides and then they look at themselves and say, we are a community of 300 people or maybe uh, two to 20 households. So what's, what is the implication of this in terms of payments? Mm. And uh, so, so they agree uh, either to pay on a monthly basis. Sometimes uh, they will agree on uh, paying or quarterly or after the harvest. And in some times uh, where, where they, they, they might not be, they might not have the money. There are even issues around, can I bring a sack of groundnuts? instead because it's worth this much and then the hand pump mechanical association can sell that and that will be my contribution so there are all these arrangements there's not one that fits all 
but everyone is involved in that. That's interesting. And and typically, does each household then pay a fixed amount each month or year? Like how how is the how is income generated? So income is generated from payments uh, by the households. Uh, it depends mainly on the family size. So it's not uniform. If you have a big family size, then they, they, they work out that out. But this is done within the community. But I also want also to mention that in DRC, for instance, there are people who are exempted from paying. Each community has vulnerable people and the community knows them. So there are those categories that they have said for this family, because we know their situation, then they will not pay. This family will pay this much money. This will not pay. And there, there are all those issues, but these are not things that the tier fund or the government will say. It's the community themselves who agree. And uh, there are mechanisms to ensure that people pay for that. One very interesting thing that I found in DRC, uh, which some people might frown uh, about, is that the, 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 the security people do not pay. And so as part of follow-up, we tried to find out whether this was an issue around, you know, that these are big people and uh, they're exploiting the community. And it was very, very interesting because of the conflict they have agreed as a community that uh, one of the police areas who get the water will not pay. But what they do in uh, turn is they ensure that the plumbers have security anytime they want, even at night, to go up the intake and ensure that everything is okay. They ensure that if anyone is brought in for vandalism, they take that as first priority. And they also monitor alongside the plumber. So that for me is quite interesting because coming from an NGO and a rights uh, kind of thinking, I, I would expect that uh, police are not exempt. But the community have decided this because of their context and the situation. So interesting stuff that uh, we find uh, when we follow up. Charles clearly sees this business model approach as a very good thing, but he also told me about what else he would like to see happen. And he talked to me about why NGOs should seek to collaborate more with government, or duty bearers as he calls them, and make sure that the NGOs' plans align with government plans. I think more and more, we should realize that as uh, NGOs, uh, we, we are supporting the duty bearers. So we need to involve them much more and mention them much more because uh, they have the mandate. You know, they are the ones that are supposed to be providing these services. And so even when we are doing the planning, it should be based on the government plan because I think most governments will have 10-year plans, five-year plans, but then sometimes as NGOs, there's a tendency to pull us towards the donors' priorities. It's good uh, because donors also have a role as stakeholders, 
But then once we get these priorities, I think it's important that uh, we check this uh, against what uh, the government has planned and align it to the government plan. Because at the end of the day, I think governments will continue to be the duty bearers and will always be there, even when our projects that are funded for a certain period of time are not there. So maybe if we could continuously talk about this a little bit much more, I think that that, that would be important and align ourselves to, to, to this as well. Finally, it's hard to talk about access to water in the future without also talking about climate change. With some areas of the world becoming more prone to drought, others more prone to flooding, when Charles thinks about climate change, how does he feel about the future? Hopeful, definitely. I'm hopeful that we can always look for solutions. Worried because climate change is real, we are seeing it, and it needs all of us to take action. So the hope comes in, for me, the, 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 the realization that all of us need to come together. And climate change will continue happening. Drought now consistently is happening in the Horn of Africa. So we need to adapt to that. We have the skills, we have the capacity, we have the finance, we have the people. So I'm hopeful that whatever situation comes because of the climate change, we can jointly go around it and we can adapt to that. So, yeah, uh, worried because situation is as it is, probably will get a little bit worse but hopeful because uh, people have realized that these things are affecting us and we have to deal with them. And we have the skill, we have the technology, uh, even for monitoring and the warning systems. We have, you know, the, the engineering skills and all that. We have the support of the governments, and so we can do something about that. That was Charles Masai, a water and sanitation expert from Tearfund. And you'll hear more about water in our next episode of this podcast, where we'll be hearing from a senior policy advisor at WaterAid, who'll be telling us about the changing relationship between women and water access in communities around the world. But that's it for this episode. Before we go, don't forget that you can help support this show by making a small monthly donation on our Patreon page just visit patreon.com forward slash Aruka Network. You can read and download every edition of Tearfund's Footsteps magazine at learn.tearfund.org, including recent editions on safe drinking water and food and nutrition. If you'd like to know more about Aruka, visit arukanetwork.org. There you'll find out ways to get involved, either as a member of the network or as a friend of Aruka, where you can support their work. You can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community online or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community. And finally, if you've got feedback on this show or maybe suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email, jake at arukanetwork.org. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, bye for now.